Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Philippians, and I'm very excited to be back uh, in this great letter that we've been working our way through here, and we're almost finished. We're in chapter 4, the final chapter, and we've come now to what may be one of the most well-known portions of this letter, and I would assume uh, some of your most favorite portion of this letter. I'm referring to Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things And the God of peace will be with you. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to come to church, not just to get our weekly spiritual high, to have some experience, but to grapple with and think deeply about the truths of your word and There's so much in this text for us and we could spend weeks on it and still not mine all that is here, but I pray the the little bit that we do uncover today would be enough for us to correct us if we need to be corrected, to comfort us if that's the need, and most of all, Lord, to conform us more to the likeness of Jesus, we pray in his name, amen. Well, we live in a fast-paced, stressed-out world where the majority of us try our best to maintain a a crazy, busy life with jam-packed schedules and never-ending demands and an ever-growing list of things to do. The hectic, chaotic pace of life coupled with the unavoidable pressures and and problems and and pains that are are part of all of our lives have left us feeling frazzled and and exhausted, and longing for peace. Peace. Ah, just the sound of it, right? There's just a pleasant sound to to the word peace. It represents tranquility and serenity, quiet, calm, rest, freedom from fear, anxiety, stress, frustration, agitation, and guilt. Peace is something that everyone wants, but few seem to actually find. Just out of curiosity, I entered the phrase, how to find peace, in a Google search, and um, in half a second, 34 million results came back, most of which 
had to do with some kind of transcendental or psychological prescription for peace. Gurus, crystals, meditation, relaxation techniques, breathing exercises, yoga, simplification, decluttering of your life, taking a walk in nature, or maybe you need to find a professional counselor who can psychoanalyze your thoughts and feelings and come up with a therapy treatment or prescribe some medication to help you relax and stay calm. Well, I'm confident that most of you are discerning enough to see right through these unbiblical ways to find peace, which ignore the only source of true peace, and that is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. However, I'm not so sure how many of us who know Christ are truly experiencing the kind of peace He promised to provide us. In John 14, 27, you'll remember Jesus said this to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Later on in that same discourse, the upper room discourse, in John 16, 33, he said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have what? Peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. What Jesus was saying here is that the kind of peace that he offered is unlike the peace that the world offers. The world suggests that the only way to experience peace is to get away from it all. In other words, we need to escape all the problems and and, and the troubles and the pressures and the demands and the pains and difficulties in our lives so we can relax and unwind and decompress. The world would have us believe that peace can be found beside a, a placid lake in the mountains, watching the fish jump or hearing nothing but the frogs chirping at night. Or peace can be found on a, on a pristine beach along the coast, watching the sunset and listening to the waves crash. Well, there's nothing wrong with longing for or taking a vacation at the beach or, or in the mountains, but we need to realize that the peace we experience there in those serene settings is superficial, it's temporal. And even those who can uh, afford to live in those places full-time, which we always think, man, wouldn't it be nice to be able to live here, right? All the time. Let's sell our house. Let's just buy a place down here and just live here all the time, thinking that that's going to be the way to enjoy life and and have a more peaceful um, lifestyle. But the reality is, even people living in those pristine places can never fully escape from the trials and troubles and tribulations of life. They still have health problems and marital conflicts and financial stresses and they have to deal with market crashes and terrorist attacks. See, the world offers a a superficial peace that's dependent on and vacillates according to our circumstances and surroundings, which, which are always changing. And if things are going well, we're calm, we're relaxed. But when things don't go so well, we become anxious and stressed. Jesus, on the other hand, offered a a supernatural peace 
that's independent of our circumstances or surroundings. We, we can experience peace in our hearts and minds even in the midst of troubles and trials and tribulations of life. Which would you rather have? Peace for a few days or a few weeks out of the year when you're on vacation? Or peace every day of your life, regardless of where you're at or what's happening in your life. Here, at the end of his letter to the believers in Philippi, Paul showed us how to experience this kind of perpetual peace, this supernatural peace, namely the the peace of God from the God of peace. Notice the two key phrases, I believe, in this text, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then again in verse 9, it says, if you practice these things, the God of what? Peace will be with you. And so this passage is all about peace. And what we learn from this passage, and just, I'll just lead with this thought, is that peace is not the absence of trouble, it is the presence of God. Peace is not the absence of trouble, it is the presence of God. In God's presence, there is perfect peace. Around his throne room in heaven, there is nothing but serenity all the time and God wants us to experience that perfect peace and serenity in our hearts and in our lives here on this earth all the time. In the same way he experiences all the time in heaven, he wants us to experience all the time here on earth. Probably one of the most well-known blessings recorded in the Old Testament is the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that that, that, that God gave Moses to give to Aaron to give to the people. And this is what it says in Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you what? Peace. Psalm 29, 11, The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And so we know that God has blessed us and provided us with peace first and foremost by sending his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place so that we as sinful enemies could be reconciled to a holy God. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.20, through him, to, uh, this is through Christ, He reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And as you know, before Jesus died and ascended back to heaven, in order to comfort his followers, he promised to send them who? The Holy Spirit, who would help them spread the message of salvation and live out all that he had taught them. And one of the fruits that the Holy Spirit produces in us is what? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. And so the first thing we need to understand is that in order to experience the peace of God, we need to have peace with God. 
In order to experience the peace of God, we need to experience peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Isaiah 48 verse 22 says this, there is no peace for the wicked. If you're a wicked person that has never acknowledged your sin before a holy God and repented and embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then no matter what you think is peace, it's not real peace. Because the Bible says there is no peace for the wicked. And as long as you reject Christ, you will continue to live a, a frazzled, agitated, frustrated, stressed out, chaotic life. And you can go to the beach all you want. And you can go to Colorado all you want. It's not going to help what's going on on the inside. But the moment we repent and receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and begins to produce peace in our hearts and in our minds. And the more our lives are controlled or or ruled by the Holy Spirit, the more we'll experience God's perfect peace. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so while peace is a gift from God, notice this, the fact that it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. These are commands. These are things that we need to do. And so while the peace of God is a gift. Peace is a gift from God in order for us to enjoy this divine blessing. We need to yield our lives to to the Spirit of Christ and obey the Word of Christ. Isaiah 32, 17 says, the fruit of righteousness or the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. In other words, the presence of God's peace in our lives It's a direct result of us doing the right things. So you can't just go do your own thing and expect to experience the peace of God. It doesn't work that way. You need to do the right things. And the most important thing that we must do to experience peace of mind is to keep our mind focused on God who never changes rather than on our circumstances or surroundings, which are always changing. Look at Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. And this is an important enough verse. I want us to actually look at it. I want you to see it. And if you don't have it underlined in your Bible yet, this would be a good time to do that. This is one of those jugular texts, one of these critical texts for our lives as Christians. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3 Well, I have an NAS in front of me. I'm going to read to you what it says in the ESV. I'll I'll read the NAS first. The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Now, listen to how the ESV translates it. I like this. It says, you keep him, God, saying this, Okay, or the, uh, Isaiah is saying this of God, you, God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. 
And so again, the key to experiencing this perfect peace is to keep your mind focused, centered on, on God. As soon as you get your mind off of God and onto yourself or onto your problems or onto your enemies, uh, you're going you're gonna to start to waver. You're, you're going to slip off that everlasting rock. Uh, you're going to start to sink in the mire of all that, whatever it is that's, that you're dealing with in life, the slew of despond. There's a song that we sing at times. It's an older hymn. It's called Like a River Glorious. Some of you young people probably have never heard of this hymn, but it's a, it's a beautiful, powerful hymn that, that really, uh, I guess, explains the principle here in Isaiah 26.3 about keeping your mind stayed on the Lord. And if, if you do that, He will keep your mind at perfect peace. It goes like this. Like a river glorious is God's perfect peace over all victorious in its bright increase. Perfect yet it floweth, fuller every day. Perfect yet it groweth deeper all the way. Wouldn't you love that to be true of you, right? That God's peace is, is becoming fuller and deeper in your life every day. It goes on, hidden in the hollow of his blessed hand, never foe can follow, never traitor stand, not a surge of worry, not a shade of care, not a blast of hurry, touch the spirit there. In other words, when you're hidden in the hollow of God's hand, your, your enemies can't, can't get you. Um, and there's no worry there, there's not a shade of care, and there, there's no hurry that can touch you there. There's perfect peace in the palm of God's hand. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. We may trust Him fully, all for us to do. They who trust Him wholly find Him wholly true. In other words, we need to trust God that He's sovereign and that He's ordained all that happens in our lives. And so we can trust Him in the good times and the bad times that these are all have been ordained by God for our, His glory and our good. And then the chorus, this is what the chorus says, stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. Stayed upon Jehovah, hearts are fully blessed, finding as he promised, perfect peace and rest. And so just just for starters, that that is the, the first and most important thing that we need to do to experience this peace of mind, uh, this peace of God from the God of peace that Paul's talking about here, referring to in Philippians 4, is to keep our mind focused, centered on, stayed on God. Now back in Philippians 4, Paul provided a list of some other things we must do in order to experience God's perfect peace and rest. And in verses 4 through 9, he gave a, a series of practical exhortations that we need to heed if we're to enjoy God's promise of peace in Christ. And actually, there are, there are six imperatives in this passage. All, of but, all but one of them are, are present imperatives, which indicates that these are commands that we must follow regularly or continually or habitually. These aren't things that, you, that are optional, number one. No, they're not optional. They're commands. We have to do these things. We're required to do these things. And not just once, 
not just every once in a while. We need to do these things all the time. That's the, that's the impact of the, of the present imperative tense in the Greek. And so we need to obey the principles in this passage if we want to enjoy the promises in this passage. There's some really cool promises in this passage. But in order to enjoy those promises, we need to obey these commands, these principles. And so, like a, a skilled spiritual physician, Paul provided the Philippians and us with a prescription for peace. I changed the title, by the way. After doing some more study, I thought, nah, pathway to peace, yeah, whatever. Now, this is a prescription for peace, a prescription for peace. And so, Paul lays out a, a treatment plan, if you will, that in, in, involves five steps that if, if carefully followed will alleviate all of our fears and anxieties along with all of our guilt and shame. Does that sound good? Wouldn't you like to have all your anxieties and fears and guilt and shame alleviated? Like, like no longer a problem in your life? No longer an issue in your life? Well, what are these five steps? Well, here they are. Number one, be joyful all the time. Number two, treat everyone graciously. Number three, don't worry about anything, pray about everything. And I've combined two commands together in that point. That's why there's only five steps and not six. Don't worry about anything, pray about everything. Number four, think only about the right things. And then number five, always do what you know is right. Always do what you know is right. And so we're going to take some time this morning just to get into this list. I'm not sure how far we'll, we'll get, but we'll... Uh, This passage is so important and the implications are so uh, relevant and profound. Uh, I'm not um, going to feel bad if it takes us several weeks to get through this. Um, This is one of those passages where you just want to kind of pull the parking brake and hang out for a little bit and try to get as much as you can uh, out of this. The first step in Paul's prescription for peace is to be joyful all the time. Let's close in prayer. Just that statement is like, great. How in the world am I going to do that? And yet that's what Paul commands us. And, and this is not just Paul's words. These are God's words through the Apostle Paul. God says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, Paul is returning, as you know, to one of the key themes in this letter, the, the theme of joy. And I don't know if we have our thing up there. Yeah, we've kind of made a deal about joyfully partnering in the cause of Christ together for the gospel. So the whole idea is joyfully uniting together uh, to be a, 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 a fellowship of the gospel, being a light for Christ, uh, but it takes joy, it takes unity to do these things, and so Paul has been telling the Philippians from chapter 1 to rejoice. Chapter 1, verse 18, what then, only then in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ proclaimed, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul began by modeling this. Before he ever told the Philippians to do it, he said, hey, just so you know, I'm doing this, okay? Uh, Paul practiced what he preached. And um, he was like the, the prophet 
uh, or she, I should say the scribe Ezra, who, who committed in his heart to not only study the law, but to practice it and then teach it. That's the proper order for a, a pastor, I think, or any teacher, is that you study the Word of God and you put it into practice in your own life and then you go teach it to others. And so here he is saying, hey, you know what? I'm in prison here and there's some people taking advantage of that, some people proclaiming Christ out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives, um, thinking that they might cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, I don't care. Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. And again, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to rejoice. I'm rejoicing in this. Chapter 2, verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, that doesn't sound very happy, by the way, very enjoyable, right? To being, being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. That sounds like you're going to die. You're giving your life as a, as a living sacrifice. He says, even if I'm doing that, even if I end up dead for your sake, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. So now he's turning the tables and saying, okay, listen, I'm, in, I'm rejoicing and I want to invite you to rejoice with me. In chapter 3, verse 1, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And here in chapter 4, he repeats that command two times. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so he's repeating this, this favored uh, or, or favored exhortation two times for emphasis. Literally, that, that word, when he says rejoice twice, he says that. He, he literally means keep on rejoicing. Be joyful. Be a cheerful person. Not just some of the time, not just even most of the time. But it says in my Bible, the word what? Always. Rejoice in the Lord all the time. Now that's relatively easy when things are going good. When your health is good, your marriage is good, your kids are doing good, your career is going good, your bank account is looking good, right? It's easy to rejoice. But it's much more difficult to rejoice when things aren't going good and there's trials and and, and there's sorrows and there's setbacks and disappointments and broken expectations in life. And that just makes it hard to be joyful. And yet God commands us throughout his word to maintain a joyful attitude no matter what happens to us. Our joy should remain constant in the ups and the downs of life. Let me just read for you some, some verses here. First Thessalonians 5.16, Paul said, rejoice always. James chapter 1, verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. What? James, what have you been smoking, man? I'm supposed to consider it joy when I encounter all sorts of trials? Yeah. Because you know that the testing of your faith, what? Develops perseverance. And perseverance, right, after it's fully complete, will yield a likeness to Jesus Christ. It'll make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Jesus 
said this, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He repeated this in Luke chapter 6, verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and score your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. That was radical for Jesus to tell the disciples that, and, and yet they got it. In, in Acts chapter four, uh, 5, verse 41, after the, the apostles were arrested and they were told, hey, you can't talk about Jesus anymore, and uh, just to make sure you don't do it again, we're going to beat you. And so they beat him, and it says in Acts 5, 41, they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were joyful just having gotten beaten up for the cause of Christ. Later, in, uh, Peter said this in his letter, first letter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Not only will you be able to, not only should you be rejoicing now, but you're going to get to rejoice even more in heaven. That your temporary problems and trials and sufferings are, are accomplishing a greater work in you that will come to its fruition in heaven. Again, Paul himself was a great example of what it looks like to rejoice no matter what happens to you. Paul remained joyful when he was persecuted, slandered, falsely accused, mistreated, arrested, imprisoned, even, even when he was facing the threat of being martyred for the cause of Christ, which was the case uh, when he wrote this letter, that he was in prison, he was under house arrest, and he was waiting uh, for Nero to decide what he was going to do with him. Was he going to let him go, or was he going to kill him? And as you read through Paul's epistles here, you, you get the idea that, that, that there's nothing that could steal this guy's joy, because he was convinced that, that, that all the difficult circumstances he experienced ultimately served to advance the cause of Christ. 1 Corinthians one twenty four. now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. You'll remember, I think, when we began this series months ago and we looked at the planting, when Paul planted the church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, he, was, he traveled to Philippi and he, he went out by the river where the ladies were having a, a, a worship service, a prayer meeting, and uh, he began to share the gospel and these ladies got saved. Lydia was the first lady that got saved and, and, uh, and then, of course, there was that demon-possessed girl that was making all sorts of ruckus and, and, and bringing a lot of attention, unnecessary attention to Paul, and he eventually got arrested. He and Silas got arrested, and they got thrown in jail in Philippi. And in Acts 16, you remember, at midnight, what was Paul doing? He was singing. 
He was having a little worship service, just he and Silas, just singing to the Lord, singing praise songs in that, in that jail cell. And if you remember, God caused an earthquake, and all of the doors opened, and the Philippian jail, the jailer there, assumed that everybody had, had escaped, and that was on him, and so he knew that his head was going to get chopped off as a consequence, and so he decided, I'm just going to do it myself, I'm just going to kill myself and commit suicide, and, and before he did that, Paul said, no, 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 stop, don't do that, we're all here. And it was through that a whole experience in prison that that guy got saved, And so, again, Paul singing in the Philippian jail epitomized the joy he expressed in all of his letters. I mean, that was a a microcosm of Paul's life and ministry. I'm in jail, and yet I'm going to rejoice anyway. And as I do that, look what happens. People get saved through my trial, through my difficulty, through my tribulation as a result of it. And so... What we learn from from Paul and his example, not just here in in his letter to the Philippians, but in all of his letters, is that joy is not a mood or emotion. It's not a mood or an emotion that's, that's based on our feelings or our circumstances or our surroundings. Biblical joy is based on what we know to be true about God regardless of how we're feeling or what we're facing. Biblical joy is based on what we know to be true about God regardless of how we're feeling or what we're facing. Now you may still be sitting there wrestling with the impossibility of all this. This this is humanly impossible. Well, you're right, it is humanly impossible. This is supernatural, remember? We're talking about something supernatural here. You can do the superficial world thing all day long if you want, but this is supernatural. You need the Spirit of God to do this. You need Christ in you to pull this off, but but you you still may be wrestling even then. This is how, how is it possible to be joyful when I'm facing circumstances and situations that aren't enjoyable? Whether it's death or illness or divorce or a layoff or a rebellious child or some kind of financial crisis in your life, that's not enjoyable. I'm supposed to be joyful. That's not enjoyable. Having type 1 diabetes is not enjoyable. And yet, by the grace of God, I watch our youngest son Manage it with joy. And we were driving to church this morning, and, and, I, and, and Jake is my Uber driver. He drives me to church now. So I don't pay him. He, he's trying to get me to pay him. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You can have lunch today and dinner tonight and breakfast tomorrow. That's your pay, right? Um, and I said, hey, buddy, I said, answer me this question. I said, how is it possible? What is the key? What is the secret? to maintaining a joyful attitude, whatever, however you're feeling or whatever you're facing. And without a, Mr. Nabi said, trusting in God. 
I was like, man, you don't have to come to church today. Drop me off and go home. You got it. You, you don't need this sermon. But that is the essence of this verse. Notice it says, rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice That's not the secret. That's, that's, that's telling you what to do, but there's a secret here. There's the key to making this all possible. What is it? What phrase? You pick it out. You find it. Rejoice what? In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul didn't exhort us to rejoice in our circumstances, our situation, but to rejoice in the Lord. I think that simple three-letter letter phrase there holds the secret, the key to maintaining a joyful attitude at all times. Listen, there are times when we experience sorrow and grief and pain. Like when someone we love dies, and, and I was here on Friday with some of you, and we watched a precious family and friends grieve over the loss of, of somebody they love very much, a, 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 a husband, a dad, a son, a friend, a discipler, a mentor. And there was a lot of sadness. There was a lot of sorrow. There was a lot of grief. There was a lot of pain at that funeral. And rightly so. But it was... In the spirit of the Apostle Paul, who said in 2 Corinthians 6.10, he says, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul admitted, there, there's times when, when I despaired even of life, I got so down, I got so discouraged, I got so bummed out. I was spiritually depressed, I, 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 just, I just maybe wanted to die, I, I despaired of life, and, and yet he said, you know what, yeah, Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, always rejoicing. Why? Because even though our hearts may be breaking, God is still good. Amen? He's still faithful. Amen? He's still wise. Amen? He's still loving. Amen? He's still sovereign. Amen? And so no matter how awful things may be, there's always something wonderful about God to rejoice in. I mean, if nothing else, you can rejoice in his grace and mercy in saving you. This was a common theme in the Old Testament. Hannah, 1 Samuel chapter 2 Talk about a, a, a mother's grief, or a woman's grief, I should say, a barren, barrenness. That, that, that really is a, is a, is a heartbreak. That's, there's an ache inside of a woman's heart who's barren, who, who can't have children. And that was, that was Hannah's predicament. She, she, she was childless. And her heart was sad, and she was begging God to, to bless her with a child. And while she waited, this is what she said, my heart exults in the Lord. Not in the fact that I had a baby, right? No, my heart exults in the Lord. And then she says, I rejoice in your salvation. Whether I ever have a baby or not, 
I'd rejoice that I'm saved, that I'm one of your children. I may never, have, may never not have a child of my own, but I'm one of your children, and I rejoice in that. Psalm 13, 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 35, 9, my soul shall rejoice in the Lord. It shall exult in his salvation. Isaiah 61, 10, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. In the midst of the the horror of what Habakkuk had to contemplate and eventually witness the, the Babylonians coming and destroying the nation of Judah, God using uh, the nation of, 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 of Babylon to punish his own people. Habakkuk couldn't get his mind around, wait a minute, you're telling me I know we're evil, I know we deserve your, your wrath and your, your, your discipline, God, but you're going to use them, a pagan nation that's far more sinful than we are to judge us? Yes, I'm going to do that, Habakkuk. And so he was questioning God throughout the three chapters of his, of, his, of his prophecy, but at the end, this is where he lands. I love Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. He, he knew what was, what was going to come, that, that, that the land of Judah was going to be devastated by the Babylonians. They wouldn't leave one rock on top of another. He said this, though the fig tree should not blossom, there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive shall fail and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So on your worst day, when you get the worst news imaginable, if you're saved, there's always something to rejoice in. That you may have lost everything like Job, but you haven't lost your salvation. Even when things are, are going good and maybe you're experiencing the blessing of God, sometimes we forget about this. It's easy to rejoice in the blessing. Jesus said something very interesting to his disciples in Luke ten twenty. He said, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. He, he just sent them out, uh, 70 of them to go and, and proclaim the gospel, and they came back, and it was kind of like time to give a little report, a little, little update. And, and, and uh, they were all excited that, hey, you wouldn't believe this. You know, we, demons were, were, were bowing to us. You know, demons as we were bowing to us, and they, we were able to cast them out. And, and it, was, it was thrilling, Jesus, that the power that we have that you gave us. And he says, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's what you should be most excited about, guys. That's just the beginning, though. That's just for starters, because beyond our salvation, we, we should also rejoice in all that God has revealed about himself in his word. He tells us he's faithful. Lamentations 3, verse 22, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Can you rejoice in that? The, 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 the night was pretty crazy, wasn't it? But the, the sun always rises, doesn't it? It always rises. Even if, even if it's behind the clouds, it's, you know it's there. 
You've been on a plane where you cut through all that stuff and you come out on top of the clouds and it's just majestic. You're like, whoa, check it out. I forgot that there was a sun. No, it's always there. It just gets covered up sometimes. He tells us that he loves us. Romans 8, 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can you rejoice in that? Absolutely. He tells us he's sovereign. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Can you rejoice in that? He tells us he's wise. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Can you rejoice in that? And we could go on and on and on, just go down the list of God's attributes. The point is this, the more we know about God, the more God's peace we will enjoy. Did you catch that? The more we know about God, the more of God's peace we'll enjoy. How, how much peace you experience is directly proportionate to how much you know God. And so if you, you know a lot about the character and the attributes of God, I assume you find it much easier to rejoice in the midst of hard times. Those of you who have little knowledge of, of God and his attributes, his character, find it much harder to rejoice. Listen, this is the point. You can't trust someone you don't know. You can't trust someone you don't know. And so this should motivate all of us to develop a deeper understanding of God and, and specifically study who he said he is and what he said he can do in the scriptures. And over the years, that God has provided some tremendous supplements to, to his scriptures, um, books on the character of God, books like Knowing God by J.I. Packer or The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink or, or The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozier or Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. I, I would recommend all of those books to you. If you can only read one, I'd say Read Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. It just highlights God's sovereignty and his wisdom and his love. I mean, if that's all you had were those three attributes of God, that's enough to trust him. And that's the point of the book. Spending time in, in helpful resources like this will enable you to have true joy, which which is a permanent, deep-down sense of peace and well-being based on your confidence that no matter how bad things may appear or feel, you know God loves you, and he's in complete control of every detail of your life, and he's wisely and providentially working behind the scenes to bring himself glory and make you more like Christ. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Again, take Paul, for example. He's the one who said most of these things. If anyone had grounds to feel sorry for himself, to have a, to have a pity party, to complain to others, it would have been Paul. And yet what he says is all the dreadful things that had happened to him had ultimately turned out for the glory of God. 
I mean, just think about him being imprisoned. That was God's providential way of getting much of the New Testament written. It was during those long, lonely hours in in prison when the Holy Spirit inspired him to write many of his letters, including this one. And through his his letters, he impacted far more people than he he could have ever by riding around around on a horse, visiting people all over Asia Minor. And, And his letters continue to impact people's lives today, including us, including ours. You may know the story of Martin Luther when kind of towards the end of his life and ministry, the Pope finally got fed up with him and, and, and put a bounty on his head and said, if you find Luther, you can kill him. You have my permission to kill him. And so some of Luther, and Luther was like, whatever. God's man's immortal until God's done to him. And he just kept right on ministering until one day uh, he got, some of his buddies loved him enough to, to, to capture him and, and to whisk him away and, and sequestered him in this castle just for his own good for his own safety. And it was, it was during those, those, those years sequestered in that castle in Germany that he translated the New Testament into German so that those people could read the word of God for themselves. It was all in the providence of God. John Bunyan, the Puritan, was uh, preaching and, 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 and the Church of England didn't like what he was preaching and so they arrested him, threw him in prison. But they couldn't stop him from preaching. He'd go out into the into the courtyard, and people would line up outside the wall to listen to him preach, and his voice would carry over the wall. And so uh, they said, well, we got to do something. And so they put him down in the deepest, darkest place, kind of solitary confinement in the jail, so nobody could, could hear him, even if he was preaching. And I'm sure at first he thought this was a big bummer. Well, guess what happened over the next 10 years is he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, which is probably the greatest book second only to the Bible. But it happened because he got thrown into prison. It would have never happened if he hadn't been in prison. And so the point is, instead of complaining about what God hasn't done or what we wished he would do, we we should see our circumstances as God-ordained opportunities to further the gospel. And in that, we can rejoice. I think the bottom line here is if our joy is in the Lord, that means it's not in what happens to us because what happens to us is always changing. But God is never changing. One commentator said it this way, Joy is independent of our immediate circumstances. If it were dependent on our surroundings, then indeed it would be as uncertain as an unprotected candle burning on a gusty night. Christian joy has no relationship to the transient setting of life and therefore it is not the victim of the passing day. And then he gets real practical. He says, one day I'm at the wedding. The next day I stand by an open grave. One day in my ministry I win 10 converts to the Lord and then for a long stretch of days I never win one. Yes, the days are as changeable as the weather and yet the Christian joy can be persistent. Where lies the secret of its glorious persistency? Here is the secret. Lo, I am with you, what? Always. In all the changing days, he changeth not.
And just to, as we close, to bring this to a practical application to this thing right here, together for the gospel, joyfully partnering in the cause of Christ. So what? How does this, what we're learning about rejoicing in the Lord always, again, so how does that relate to this, this mission? Well, I would say this, if we're joyful all the time in the Lord, like Paul commands us to, then that will set us apart from the majority of people in this world. But they, they don't get this. They don't understand this. They don't practice this. They can't. And nothing is more needed today than for those of us who call ourselves Christians to live consistently joyful lives in this uncertain and ever-changing world. That we would be like Paul, what Paul said in chapter 2 of Philippians, that, that we would do all things without grumbling, complaining, disputing so that we'll prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Listen, if nothing else, you walk out of here with a smile on your face that stays on your face all week and it's not based on everything because everything's going great in my life. It's because I'm saved. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I got something to smile about. That smile is going to catch people's attention because there's a lot of grumpy people out there who don't have a smile on their face. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a classic book called Spiritual Depression. And I was, I was reading that this last fall and I came across this quote, and I thought, well, this is, this is the book of Philippians. Let, let me read it for you as I close. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, quote, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. There can be little doubt, but that the exuberant joy of the early Christians was one of the most potent factors in the spread of Christianity. A depressed Christian is a contradiction in terms. And he's a very poor recommendation for the gospel. Nothing is more important, therefore, than that we should be delivered from a condition which gives other people looking at us the impression that to be a Christian means to be unhappy, to be sad, to be morbid. There are many who give that reason for not being a Christian. They say, look at Christian people, look at the impression they give, and they're very fond of contrasting us with people out in the world, people who seem to be so thrilled by the things they believe in, whatever they may be. They shout at their football games. They talk about the movies that they have seen. They're full of excitement, and they want everybody to know it. But Christian people too often seem to be perpetually in the doldrums and too often give this appearance of unhappiness and of absence of joy. There is no question at all but that this is the main reason why large numbers of people have ceased to be interested in Christianity. And then he says this, it behooves us, therefore, not only for our sakes, but also for the sake of the kingdom of God and the glory of the Christ in whom we believe to present him and his cause in such a way that men and women will be drawn and attracted as they observe us, whatever our circumstances or condition. 
We must so live that, we, that they will be compelled to say, would to God I could be like that. Would to God I could live in this world and go through this world as that person does as we face the modern world with all its trouble and turmoil and with all its difficulties and sadness. Nothing is more important than that we, call our, that, that, that we who call ourselves Christians and who claim the name of Christ should be representing our faith in such a way before others as to give them the impression that here is the solution and here is the answer. In a world where everything has gone so sadly astray, we should be standing out as people characterized by a fundamental joy and certainty in spite of conditions, in spite of adversity. He says, now that is the picture which is given of God's people everywhere in Scripture. Those men of God stood out in that way And whatever their circumstances and conditions, they seem to possess a secret which enabled them to live triumphantly and to be more than conquerors. What was their secret? They lived, they dwelled in the presence of God. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. And I've often asked myself, why am I so unhappy? Why why do I lack joy? Well, there's one obvious reason. I must not be spending time with God in his presence because the Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. And so if you want to have fullness of joy, there's only one place to get it, and that's in the presence of God of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this short little verse that's just chock full of of truth for us to understand and to apply. And so, Lord, I ask that you would be gracious as we just have really just focused on one little nugget here, but it would be enough for us to chew on for weeks and months and for a lifetime. Lord, I pray your spirit would would grant us greater growth, uh, greater fruitfulness in peace. We know ultimately uh, that that peace is a fruit of your spirit. So I pray that we would uh, never be accused of being sour, pushed, grumpy uh, people. Lord, what a a bad name for Christ uh, if we're like that. Lord, teach us to have true, genuine joy It's not based on our circumstances, our situation, or our feelings, but it's rooted in the truth of your word and who we know you are. And Lord, I pray that we would all, as a result of this message, be driven deeper into your presence so that we could experience that fullness of joy, we pray, that you offer all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.